Listen to this caricature of many Christians today that D.A. Carson writes. I'd like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial and trials, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I'd like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those of different races, especially if they smell. I'd like enough gospel to make my family emotionally secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too, large, too greatly enlarged. I'd like about $3 worth of gospel, please, but no more. What does the gospel change? What does Jesus change? What changes when one is born again? What changes when we receive a heavenly, eternal inheritance? What changes when the Holy One, who is the judge, is also our Father? What changes with the ransom that comes from Jesus' blood? Do you have a big enough gospel for it to go to the other parts of the world and see people saved? I think you'd say, yeah, I do. Do you have a big enough gospel that can move you from darkness to light? I think you'd say, yeah, I do. But do you have a gospel big enough to change the most mundane things in your life? Do you have a gospel that's powerful enough to transform your identity, transform reality? Do you have a gospel that's powerful enough to not just change the circumstances of your life for the better, but to usher in a whole new glorious world around you in the midst of hard and unjust circumstances? Well, that's what we're talking about today from the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, if you have a Bible with you, turn there. We're talking specifically how Christ changes our outlook on work. Every day, plain old, hard, but transcendent work. Christ changes our outlook on work and those in authority over us. Peter tells us this. We'll get to that in verse 18 in just a second here, but let's first read verses 11 and 12. We saw last week that those are kind of a preface that lead into this section where then Peter deals with some specific cases. So last week we saw the, the instance of government in verse 13 and following. But let's back up. Verse 11 and 12 give us a preface. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, verse 18, our passage for this week. For instance, we could say, we could add that there. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. 
not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's God's word for us this morning. You know, much of the church's teaching, both in the New Testament and since the New Testament was written, arises to meet a particular need. Uh, It's very practical. It's in some ways pragmatic. It, It often answers a particular question or dilemma that the church faces at that time. And such is obviously the case with 1 Peter 2. Peter's answering the legitimate question. He's anticipating a, anticipated a, a, a typical dilemma for Christians in the first century Roman world. So let's say you're a Gentile, a Roman citizen, and you've been saved. You've joined with Jesus and his people. You're now part of what verse 9 described as. You're now part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is now your biography. But you're under the Roman government. So last week we saw Peter answering the questions. Does citizenship in Christ's kingdom remove all other authorities? Does our privileged status trump the authority of an ungodly, oppressing emperor like Nero? That's what we saw Peter answer last week. We won't rehash his answer. But this week we see a similar dilemma. So again, let's say you're you're saved. You're a Roman citizen in the first century times. You've now become a Christian, joining with Jesus and his followers. You're now part of that chosen race, that royal priesthood, holy nation. You're now his people. And you're a slave. What now? Does being bought by Christ mean that no human being can make any claim on you? You're free in Christ, the gospel says. Are you free to go? You've been under a man. And a man who is not yet, anyway, his people. Not yet from darkness into light. Are you still under him? Is he still over you? What if he's a really bad guy? I mean, royal priesthood, this guy's a royal jerk. He's cruel, he's unjust, he's crooked. What then? Well, that's what our passage this morning addresses. I have three M's for you on your outline. 
The first is the meaning of servants and masters in verse 18. This is the who of the passage. Who is Peter referring to when he addresses servants and their masters in verse 18? We have to start there because of our country's history in the African slave trade in the 18th and 19th century, not to mention a civil war and countless other consequences that followed. We rightly have sensitivity to the language of servants and masters. Our ears perk up, but not in a good way. So let's start there. What does it mean when Peter writes servants in masters? Because there's a difference between what Peter means and what we hear as Americans who've gone through what we've gone through in this country. In our country, during the African slave trade, slavery was based on race and color alone. It started with kidnapping, and it was lifelong. None of those was the case in Roman slavery, the kind that Peter's talking about here. In our country, we had that sticky point, you could say, where we were buying and trading and beating people, but some lines of our Declaration of Independence and Constitution didn't seem to support that. What do we do? Well, they came up with this one. They're not people. African slaves were sold just like cattle and farming equipment. But in Peter's time, this was unheard of. It was unthinkable. Of course, slaves were people. In Peter's time, people could be sentenced to slavery as a punishment for crime. Think of even here today how a judge can sentence someone to so many hours of community service for some kind of small crime they committed. They have to wear those orange suits and go and stab trash on the side of the freeway. In a sense, that's required work, isn't it? It's, it's required servitude. It's temporary slavery, in a sense. Well, imagine that principle more broadly applied to our justice system. So it's not just little things that get you community service. But you do something bigger and you get much more of that kind of thing of working for someone or for the empire. Some Roman slaves were enslaved because they had accrued massive debt and they had no way to pay it back. There was no no bankruptcy back then. There was no credit card where you slowly pay it down. Sometimes in movies, I actually don't know if this is true, thankfully, Sometimes in movies, you see someone at a restaurant, and they can't pay their bill because, oh, no, they don't have any money on them. And what does the restaurant make them do? Wash dishes. Like Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Pee-wee has to wash dishes before he meets Simone and goes up to the giant dinosaur and falls asleep. You know, right? We all know this. Well, that's sort of the kind of thing of working off a debt that's very small and temporary, whether it's real or not. You see it in the movies, and you can imagine what that might be like in another culture, another time, and you can extrapolate that to a much bigger picture of the economy and a much bigger part of justice. But, but more than that, many slaves had actually signed up to be slaves. A good slave was able to climb a societal and economic ladder in those days more easily than those who were impoverished and yet free. Slaves would have connections. So many sold, sold themselves into slavery simply because it was better opportunity and often had better pay. 
Some Roman slaves were put in charge of a master's possessions and his money. They would often go into the city and do the master's business for him. They'd be entrusted with his money, entrusted with his stuff. Some slaves would have looked more like a manager of a small business than the other people that worked there. Some were highly educated. Some were skilled at a specific trade. Some had their own slaves, people underneath them. Yes, some did menial labor, but some were public officials. Some were doctors. Some were educators with the equivalent of PhDs. Many slaves might more closely resemble contract labor, bound by a contract to keep doing this job. Way closer to that than anything in American slavery. Wayne Grudem says that many slaves would have more closely resembled what today we see in the military. People sign up, they can be bossed around, they can be sent here or there, and they're given responsibility and they're respected. Now, I don't want to overstate things. In Peter's time, in Paul's time, in the Roman world, there were grave injustices for slaves. Many were mistreated or threatened or beaten or controlled, yes. There weren't many laws in the first century to protect them. But the point is that the picture is extremely diverse when we hold up slavery in the Roman world in the first century. And we shouldn't draw a straight line from the language of 1 Peter 2 or the other passages in the New Testament which discuss slavery to what our country knows about slavery and knows all too well. This passage, and as I said, others like it, are often used as straw man arguments against the Bible or against Christianity. Some protest. If the Bible is true and if it's the eternal word of God like you Christians say, then why doesn't it condemn slavery outright and in toto? Why do the first Christians not seek to overthrow the slavery that was around them? Yeah, that sounds good, but the The passages that we're talking about don't commend slavery. They simply assume slavery. About one-third of the Roman world was made up of slaves at this time. It wasn't just part of their economy, like America South before the Civil War. It was all they knew. This small but growing band of Christ followers was not going to overthrow the Roman government and the Roman economy and the Roman culture all at the same time. Peter and Paul, as we'll see today, assume slavery, but note this, they set up principles within the relationship between slaves and masters that essentially ensured slavery's demise much further down the road. In other words, I think I can show this historically, it was Christianity that gave the world the idea that slavery was wrong, starting in England with men like Wilberforce. One thinker today, Miroslav Volf, wrote like this. He said, The New Testament emptied slavery of its inner content until eventually its outer shell was discarded. So, 1 Peter 2 is not at all giving a universal approval of slavery, whether we're talking the the African slave trade in the 18th and 19th century here, or... Or even worse, maybe you could say, those who are today kept and sold into sex trafficking. 
This passage has nothing to do with those three poor girls in Ohio who were just rescued from a decade of depravity. That's not what it's saying. That's not what it's talking about. But if it's talking about a kind of servantry that's something a little closer to work, then it's also a little closer to home, this passage. It speaks to those of us with a job. It speaks to any of us who have an overseer, any of us who are part of some kind of hierarchy. It speaks to work in general, in a sense. And I think even further, this passage of 1 Peter 2 applies to anyone who finds themselves in lowly circumstances, in a difficult situation, in seemingly inescapable times or circumstances. Slavery was sort of symbolic in a sense. Peter is talking to slaves directly while he's looking at the whole church. Slaves and non-slaves as well. You see, slaves were, in a sense, of the lowly. And he's already been saying, in verse 16, Christians are free, but they're servants of God. When he said servants, he used the most typical word for slave. Slaves of God. Christians, all of them, are slaves of Christ. A chapter before, he said that we've been ransomed from our former ways, bought, purchased. We're now owned by Christ's blood. We're his. We've been born into his family. That was one of the ways in which you became a slave. You were born into a household. I think Peter's been laying some breadcrumbs down for us to follow his lead. When he says, slaves, be subject to your own masters and do it with respect, he's speaking to all of us who are in Lowly times, difficult circumstances, or those which are seemingly inescapable. What's more, what he goes on to prescribe for slaves to do really affects anyone who's a part of any kind of hardship or any injustice or any kind of suffering at the hand of another. So he'll go on to talk in verse 19 about enduring sorrows and suffering unjustly. Or verse 20, that some are being beaten, uh, that they're doing good and suffering and enduring. You see, these words, suffering unjustly, enduring sorrows, being beaten physically or emotionally, these things all apply to us, regardless of whether you have a job, regardless of whether you've ever been a slave. It applies to anyone who's under someone and has someone over them, and it also applies to anyone who's in a lowly position in difficult times and has seemingly inescapable circumstances. This also then applies to kids. Kids, it applies to you in your relationship with mom and dad and your relationship to your teacher and even your soccer coach, or whatever kind of coach you have. So hear me loud and clear. This passage has a lot to say to all of us this morning, so don't be lazy in applying the passage to you. When I say slave, don't think, that's on me. It applies to all of us. That's the meaning of servants and masters. Secondly, let's talk about this, the manner of Christian work. The manner of Christian work, what does he say? That they should do? Well, three words. Verses 18 to 20, Peter says we should submit and respect and endure. Submit is another word for saying what he says in verse 18. Be subject. 
Put yourself under, in other words. Not just put yourself under them in general or in some sort of organizational chart, but put yourself under them consciously and in your actions. Put yourself under those who are above you. Employers, employers, bosses, parents, coaches. Now, by the way, this assumes the nobility of work in general. Work is not a necessary consequence or a necessary evil. It's not a consequence of the fall. Work for Christians is not a four-letter word. It is a four-letter word, but it's not a bad four-letter word. In the beginning, God worked. And in the beginning, God assigned work told Adam and Eve to subdue the garden. So some of you need to hear 1 Peter 2 saying to you, are you under someone? Why not? Place yourself under someone. Doesn't mean you can't own a business, but, but you know. Are you working? Do you need to get to work? Is it time to get a job? Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4. Where Paul says, we urge you to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands so that you may walk properly before outsiders. And if you have done this, you have a job, you're under someone, you're working, you're productive, you get that God designed that we should work and in a sense find fulfillment and in a sense do his image and his imaging through creating and making, well then, if you have someone over you, be subject to them, submit yourself to them, follow them, do what you're told, and do it all the way. Of course there's the qualification that we talked about last week, like the government. When the government says, you must do this thing that the Bible calls sin, we say no. So if an employer says, you must do this, or you're fired, and God has said, you better not. Then we say with Acts 5, it's better to obey God than to obey man. God is our final master. He's the ultimate ruler. He's the big boss. Submit. Be subject otherwise. But Peter also says, do it with respect. And with all respect, verse 18. Respect. Respectful means courtesy, yes. It means respecting with the work itself, yes. Respect means honest work, doesn't it? Respect means not only working when the boss is around and when he's watching. How many of you had that first job? Hopefully you've gotten better since that first job. That first job, you know, you'd go to the bathroom for an hour and a half. I mean, now there's cell phones. Back then, I would just go to the bathroom and and fall asleep. Good thing there weren't cell phones back then. I'd have something else to do in the stall besides just avoid work. But if the boss was around, I remember the first job I had, the general manager of this car dealership, he walked around like this. He had crystal eyes. People froze into stone when he looked at him. He never said anything. He just walked around like light lasers would shoot out any moment from his eyes and burn you to pieces. And when he was around... I worked hard. Hopefully now I work hard because the Lord is watching. 
Because the Lord knows. We shouldn't be selective with our hard work. We shouldn't be self-serving with our hard work. We shouldn't just do the work that we want to do at work. We shouldn't just do the work that we're good at or or the work that makes us look good. We we shouldn't push aside that work that, that won't help us get to the next level, the raise, the next job. Colossians 3, Paul talks about this. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity and honesty of heart. We do it fearing the Lord. Which means we do it like this, submitting and respecting, even when the boss is a jerk. That's what Peter says. Not just, verse 18, to the good and to the gentle. Some are good and gentle, but some aren't. Also, you do this to the unjust. Literally, the word is crooked. Maybe they're crooked financially, but they're crooked probably in every way. Crooked financially, crooked morally, crooked in in their design and in, in their work. You see, the respect that Peter's prescribing for us here is not because those to whom we should show respect are acting respectably, not because they're earning our respect. We saw that last week. That's God's plan. You respect or honor the emperor, not because the, honor, because the emperor is always honorable. You do it because it's God's will, because it's God's plan, because it's God's design, and because this is where God has you. Whatever boss you have right now, you may not have him next week, but you have him now. And hence, in God's providence, he's put you there. He's put you there. It's his design. So show respect. Respect as to the Lord. But then there's also that other word, endure, which is important. Endure. When they're unjust to us, when we suffer unjustly, like verse 19 says, we endure those sorrows. Even when, verse 20, we do good and we suffer for it, we endure. That doesn't just mean grin and bear. It means something more like absorb it. Take it. Peter's saying, you can take it. Your identity is not bound up in your rights in getting credit, in the, in the approval of your boss, in the fairness of the system, who gets raises and how much they make and who gets what task and, and who's in the boys' club and who's outside of it. We absorb it. Many of you know the story of Jackie Robinson, the first African-American to, uh, to enter the enter Major League Baseball. Maybe you saw the recent movie about Jackie Robinson. If so, you probably remember that great exchange between Robinson and Branch Rickey, the Brooklyn Dodger GM. The GM was prepping Jackie Robinson for the taunts that he would receive in Major League Baseball and white baseball, the ridicule that he'd get. He was even describing what people would say explicitly. And and the GM asks, what are you going to do when that happens? Jackie says, what do you want? You want a ball player that's afraid to fight back? And the GM says, here's the the money quote. He says, I want a ball player with guts enough to not fight back. That's what Peter's talking about. Not passivity. Not giving up hope on the possibility of change or improvement. But change happening through quiet resolve and trust. 
Not weakness, but strength that's more powerful than knuckles and profanities exchanged. Sometimes you suffer for doing good. Sometimes you suffer despite much good that you've done. Sometimes you simply have good that gets overlooked. That's probably a more common kind of suffering that we face today in the workforce, if you can call it suffering. But we often feel like we suffer greatly because our good, our skills, our gifts, our opportunities are passed by and overlooked. They go unnoticed without thanks. It's a kind of suffering. We should do it mindful of God, verse 19 says. All of this, mindful of God, conscious of who he is and where he is and what he said and who we are in him. Which means that this passage not only confronts those who might do too little work, it also confronts those who think too much of their work and do too much of it. It not only confronts those who think too much of themselves to submit themselves to to someone else with respect, but it also confronts those who think too much of themselves because of their work. Their identity is their work. 1 Peter 2 confronts the idol of ease, but it also confronts the, the idol of work. Neither are the Lord. That's the point. Neither are the Lord. The Lord is the Lord. So ultimately, our work is unto the Lord, and the respect he calls us to is for the Lord. It's not for bosses, ultimately. It's not for paychecks, ultimately. It's not for self-worth. It's not to impress others. Paul says in Ephesians 6, one of these work, servant, master passages, he says, obey your earthly masters as you would Christ, as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. And he says again in Colossians 3, you are serving the Lord Christ Jesus in this, in this thing of submitting, obeying, honoring respecting. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7 on this issue. This is a key passage about slaves and masters in the New Testament, and so it's worth looking there at a few verses. You'll see behind me on the screen. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 20, Paul says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. When you got saved, you're a slave or you're a free man? Paul says you should stay there. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. Now, he does put in this parenthesis, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. But he goes on. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. That's how he should think of himself. But he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a, cry, bought with a price free American Christian. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Do you see the transformation of identity that takes place there? The transformation of perspective that happens in the gospel, in Christ? Do you see how the gospel simultaneously elevates and humbles? Those who are free should consider themselves slaves. Slaves of Christ. Those who are slaves 
consider yourself free. Remember all that exalted language that Peter's already used about Christians? A chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession. That's you. That's applicable to slaves as well as to kings, to all, regardless of their job. We're all priests. It's all temple-like. It's all to be done worshipfully and to the Lord, whether you're a trash collector or, or whether you're a president, whether you make $15,000 a year or you make $15 million a year. Our work as Christians is to be holy, it's to be set apart, it's to be special, it's to be done to the Lord. That's Christian work. Now, before we go any further, let's ask a question about something I've kind of assumed so far. Is there something called Christian work? Is that a proper way to think of it? Is there Christian work? My answer to that is yes and no. It's not an unimportant thing. Basically, Calvin said, yes, there's Christian work, and Martin Luther said, no, there's no Christian work. And the Reformation tradition's been divided on this issue ever since, Lutherans and Reformed. Let me just give a few minutes to explain the difference. When I speak of Christian work, as I have in this outline this morning, I don't mean the ministry. I don't mean work in a ministry, noble as that might be, as good as that might be. When I say Christian work, I don't mean some kind of distinction like we would make or some would make between Christian music and secular music. So make sure the content of what you do is Christian and not secular. I don't mean that. I don't mean something like a Christian plumber should somehow hang Christian pipes somehow mysteriously putting a cross in every wall, if he can, just because. not referring to artists who only paint crosses, or for that matter, only paint houses of light, not darkness. I'm not saying that Christian work is normal work plus witnessing. Certainly that's relevant, Peter says. We should proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. Yes, of course. But obviously Peter is calling us to more than just some sort of J-O-B plus witnessing. I'm also not saying that non-Christians can't be faithful or respectful or honest or resilient or selfless in their work. Hundreds, thousands do. I'm saying that Christians must do their work like this. Non-Christians may do their work like that. They should do their work like that. We Christians must do our work like that. Faithful, respectful, honest, resilient, selfless. We must because God tells us to. And we must because we have a gazillion other reasons given in Scripture for why we work the way we do. That brings us to our last point. The motivations for Christian work. The motivations, the why. We've seen the who, the what, the what to do. Now we come to the why. Why should Christians work in submission and respect and endure suffering? Well, verse 19 tells us it's a gracious thing. It's repeated again at the end of verse 20. It's a gracious thing. Literally in the Greek, it says it's a grace thing. It's a noun. It's a grace thing. We sometimes say in Christian circles, oh, it was a real God thing. Meant God was in it. You can see it. It was visible. It had, you know, really clear connected dots in God's providence. 
Well, Peter basically is saying it's a real grace thing when we do this. It's grace on display. It holds out grace. It's gracious and grace giving. It points to grace, gives grace. It's like a little gospel when we do this. And the alternative is not noteworthy. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 20 when he says, What credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it? What credit? What he means by credit here is not applause by men or necessarily like crowns in heaven. I think he means what noteworthiness is there if you're suffering because you're a jerk? If you suffer at work because you're lazy, if you suffer at work because you're inept, if you're suffering at work because you're in over your head, do not hold up the banner of Christ over it and say, thanks be to God, I will take this one, the blessing will be mine in heaven. There's no credit for that. There's no credit for suffering at work because of your shortcomings. That's using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, if you think that. We also, as Christians, should receive correction quite willingly. Be quick to receive correction because there's no credit if you're confronted and you bristle and then there are consequences. So, there is credit. It is noteworthy if you don't sin, you are faithful, you are respectful, and you're beaten for it, you're persecuted for it. This is what you've been called to, verse 21 says. In verse 19, he says we should do it mindful of God. We've been called to this. He's in it. We know he's in it. He's around it. He's given us commandments about it. Not just here in 1 Peter, but all over. 1 Timothy 2 and Titus as well. He says it again and again, what we should do. We should also do it because our Savior did it. That's what he says in verse 21. The suffering that Jesus gave was for us, for you. We're the happy recipient of his sacrifice. But, but it's not just a sacrifice for our sins. It's also an example, he says in verse 21. And we should follow in his steps. So Peter now launches into how Jesus is an example for our enduring suffering, persecution, injustice, being maligned. He suffered and didn't commit sin. He didn't lie to get out of it. He didn't lie about others who were opposing him. He was reviled, verse 23, but he did not revile in return. Reviled. Think of the workplace. Reviled, reviled, reviled. So easy to revile in return in the name of standing up for ourselves. Ryan, you're saying we should be a pushover? Oh, I don't know. It needs wisdom, doesn't it? And there's a time to, to speak up, and there's a time to shut up. I don't know exactly in your situation what you should do. I just know we're probably much too concerned about our own rights, our own needs, the protection of ourselves, and not looking to Christ nearly enough that when he was reviled, he didn't revile. When he was threatened, he didn't threaten Instead, he looked to the end-time justice of God. He, he continued, verse 23, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
So let's apply these things that are said about Christ to us as Christians today as we follow his lead in the workplace or under anyone else, especially those who are unjust to us. What do we do? How do we think? Well, we're confident in God's justice. We're confident that at the end he'll set it all straight. We're confident in his timing because it may not be just just now. We Christians need not avenge ourselves. Justice is the Lord's. We Christians need not seek out petty recognition as if this is the only award or reward that will ever come. We have an inheritance in heaven. It's already there. It's imperishable. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for us. I don't need the applause of men. I don't need an honest eval. I don't need uh, the raise, the bonus, whatever. No. We serve for the Lord's sake. We do it as to him. Our work and our sacrifice and even respect for those not respectable, it's not forced, but it's freely offered as a living sacrifice to imitate Christ, who's the suffering servant. And there's no greater privilege in the world than to do what he did, something like what he did on the cross to imitate him when he was at his peak, when he was being lifted up. You see, we're never enslaved by anyone. We're slaves of Christ. We don't resort to tit for tat. We're not a people who nurse hurts. We're not a people who lick our wounds. We're a people with thick skin. We're a people who can take it. We're a chosen race, royal priesthood. We're people of God's own possession. He owns us. We're his people. That's settled. So we can never be humiliated ultimately because like Christ, we've already humbled ourselves before him. We can and we will rise above simple temporal justice to reflect God's economy of love and mercy And that shines the brightest in the darkest of circumstances or the hardest of times or the most unjust of workplaces. There's one more motivation that Peter gives us. Verses 24 and 25, it's this. In Christ, there is now a a new way around us, a new life, a new path. We're a new people. We've been born again. So he says in verse 24 that he suffered that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he says in verse 25, we're no longer wayward sheep straying away from God in his commandments. We're now under the shepherd. And I love that Peter ends this section with those two titles, those names for Christ. He's the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Overseer. Jesus is the boss. He's the boss. He's the the one who oversees not only life, but our souls and eternal life. How comforting that the capital B boss is also our shepherd. What does shepherd mean? He's the shepherd means he's the protector. He's the feeder. He's the leader. He's the guide. He's the helper. He's the one to correct us and straighten us and to do it gently. Because he cares for us. He knows his sheep by name. We know this because he laid down his life for his sheep. John 10 says. So Jesus is our example, but he's not just our example. Every world religion 
has a leader, which is only an example. Confucius or Buddha, fill in the blank. None of them are also a substitute. None of them are also the means by which we have hope. But Peter says here, Christ suffered for you. He says here, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He says by his wounds we are healed. If you believe those wounds were real, you believe he died for sin, you believe he was raised in the third day, you've entrusted your soul to him, then you are saved and forgiven. You're his And he's not just an example, he's your righteousness. Do you believe that? Is Christ yours like that? He can be today. Call out to him. Ask for his mercy. Turn from your sin. Cling to him. And Christians, let's not forget the mission. And that the mission is one of those motivations for this kind of otherworldly approach to work and to those who are over us. It's not directly in our passage, but we saw it last week, didn't we? Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's our hope. Even with an unjust boss or unjust friends or those parents who are sometimes wrong or a coach who sometimes mean. A teacher doesn't always get it right. We trust God, we do what he says because he's so much bigger than that moment, isn't he? And yet he's in it for us and with us. Let's pray for his help now. Father, we thank you. We praise you for your goodness to us in the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, our example and our, our substitute, our righteousness, our, our hope, our salvation. We believe in him, rejoice in him, and we want to walk his walk. We want to follow him. We want to take up our cross and follow him daily. We need your help. We need courage to do that. We need wisdom to do that. We need conviction of sin. We need clarity. We need light. We need your presence before us and near us at all times. We need to know that you see, that you're here, that you're good, that you're in it, that you're bigger than it. That you're the eternal one. You're the one to whom we can, like Jesus, entrust our souls. The one who is the just judge. The one whose name is high over all. We rejoice in him today. Help us now to sing, as we should, thoughtfully, passionately, loudly, to your glory, Lord. Amen.